Tony in front. Crosses over. Gets a shot goal. What a great goal by Tony Field. Now here's Stevie Hunt beating two men. He's in. A shot goal. Steve Hunt, a brilliant goal. The Cosmos lead 4-1. Come on, make your Interception by the Cosmos. Topic on the right side. Crosses in front. Canaglia! Go! Canaglia, go! Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this, uh, this machinery rolling, shall we? Thank you so much for finding our little podcast. Uh, amidst the uh, wide and vast array of choices that you have out there in podcast land, uh, you have stumbled across the uh, podcast that we like to call Good Seats, still available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Uh, thank you for finding us. Thank you for listening to us. And uh, if you're a repeat uh, customer, uh, we uh, doubly uh, thank you for uh, coming back. We are uh, going into uh, uh, NASL, North American Soccer League Championship Soccer, uh, once again uh, this week. And uh, we have a a tremendous guest who is in the thick of the heyday of the NASL and uh, will regale you with some very interesting stories. And I think a few little nuggets that have never been revealed before. At least it was uh, news to me. uh, And aren't you curious now? Uh, Jim Trecker is our guest. And Jim uh, was the uh, public relations a guru behind uh, many of the uh, uh, formative and uh, huge, uh, big, gigantic years of the New York Cosmos, arguably uh, the uh, first uh, real uh, modern day super team uh, in worldwide soccer. And obviously a huge phenomenon in the late 70s and early 80s, not only in New York, but in this country, as well as worldwide on the soccer scene. Uh, Jim was there. Jim was handling uh, all the efforts of all those egos involved, uh, whether it was uh, Pelé or, or owner Steve Ross or the Erdogan brothers of Atlantic Records fame and Giorgio Canalia, the stir, the excuse me, the straw that uh, often stirred many a drink uh, for that team. Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto. I mean, you just name it. Uh, a who's who of uh, stars and talent. Uh, and Jim Trecker was in the uh, promotional throes of, uh, of uh, helping that team uh, uh, gain ascendance and uh, and credence. Uh, in the sports landscape in this country, uh, some amazing stories. Uh, but then, of course, uh, Jim went on to uh, to bigger things with the uh, the league office, the North American Soccer League, which uh, you know turned to him as uh, the Cosmos basically, uh, you know, were this uh, gigantic cosmic, shall we say, uh, event. And uh, who better to sort of help the league uh, in its growing pains as well? Uh, Jim also uh, regales us with some stories about the Washington Diplomats uh, and their. Uh, 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 ownership by Madison Square Garden at the time in the early 80s. Uh, and Jim even starts off our little conversation with uh, some of his earliest days uh, as a member of the uh, AFL becoming NFL New York Jets. Uh, we get to all of that and a whole bunch more. Uh, Jim also was the uh, PR director uh, for the very successful, enormously successful 1994 World Cup uh, here in the United States. Uh, it's an amazing uh, journey. It's a, It's fascinating stuff. Uh, the idea of uh, PR and promotion and uh, communications, all that stuff, uh, you're going to learn a lot, uh, as I did uh, with our guest Jim Trecker. Uh, he of the uh, old North American Soccer League, the New York Cosmos and the Washington Diplomats and the league itself, 
Uh, we get to all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, stay tuned for that because uh, you're going to enjoy it. And uh, by the way, uh, one of the uh, cool things that Jim is involved with now, uh, and I'll give you a tease for it now, is a reunion of uh, many of the players and, and referees and administrators and coaches, et cetera, of the North American Soccer League. It is the upcoming 50th anniversary, if you can believe it, uh, of the launch uh, back in 1968, it was, of the North American Soccer League. And uh, the reunion uh, is going to occur in the, I think it's the third week of October in Frisco, Texas, uh, at uh, the uh, newly rechristened National Soccer Hall of Fame there. It's a whole weekend, not only for the uh, relaunch of the uh, of the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame, but also uh, in tandem with that is the 50th anniversary of the NASL. Uh, you can go and find out more about this uh, and be hopefully part of it uh, by going to the website uh, that uh, they've got uh, set up for the NASL reunion. It's NASL50th50th.com. 50th, NASL50th.com. That is the place to go to find out all about uh, the uh, 50th uh, anniversary reunion of the NASL, the North American Soccer League, uh, in conjunction with the relaunch uh, of the newly relocated National Soccer Hall of Fame in Frisco, Texas, uh, the home of uh, the stadium as well as the, the town, the home of the uh, current FC Dallas team in Major League Soccer. Uh, we'll uh, re repeat that later on in the show, but uh, I, I have already booked my tickets, at least my hotel room. I look forward to seeing uh, all of the major uh, stars and 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 legacy players and and, and just people involved with this great league uh, and uh, and more to wet your whistle, so to speak, about the NASL uh, with Jim in just a couple of seconds. A quick couple of promotional notes first, uh, of course, uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Can you think of a better sponsor for this episode? No, no, you can't. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. You want stuff from soccer years past? You want NASL memorabilia? You, you know that you can go and bookmark and go off and, uh, to sportshistorycollectibles.com. You will find stuff from the NASL. You will find stuff that you love and cannot live without at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And once you do, and I'm, it's not a question of if, right? It's a question of when you want to make sure that you use the promo code. Say it with me nice and loud. Good seats. Promo code is good seats at sportshistorycollectibles.com. That's a 15% discount that you will get by using said promo code good seats. And uh, I, uh, in addition to soccer, right, there's tons of stuff, uh, sports uh, of teams and leagues that don't know, uh, are not around anymore for whatever reasons, uh, or in past incarnations of teams that do exist today, but uh, are just uh, long gone from their previous ports of call, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use that promo code good seats and get your 15% discount off of all your purchases. And of course, too, we also want to remind you about Audible, our friends in the audiobook world, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the place to go to get your free one month subscription to the Audible service and a free audiobook download uh, for you to choose from over, what is it now, 180 plus thousand, oh, sorry, 180,000 plus. There you go. Titles. It's too many. I can't keep up with them. Neither can you, frankly, but I guarantee by giving it a trial, at audibletrial.com slash goodseats, you will find something. One book? Can you find one book among 180,000 plus titles? I think you can, and you owe it to yourself to give it a try. As I have said many times before, and I will underline it again, you can cancel at any time. Give it a try. It's no risk. Go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Get your free audiobook download. Enjoy it. 
and uh, I defy you not to find a title that you will uh, that you will listen to uh, uh, with ease and enjoy. Thanks for giving that a try. Thanks for uh, listening thus far. And now, thanks for continuing to listen to our very fun conversation with the great Jim Trecker here on The Big Show. I've been asked throughout my career countless times by young people. I've always made a point of trying to speak to any young people about the business, you know, when I was in the business, how to get into it and so forth. And I have no explanation as to how this happened. I have absolutely no explanation as to how my career happened, because it sure as the devil wasn't by any plan. (laughs) Uh, Unlike uh, what seems to be some young people's uh, pathways today, where they decide I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to get an MBA. um, I went to get a liberal arts education. I was, uh, my brother was a journalist for, for most of his life at the Hartford Current. He came down to Columbia one day, and I actually don't recall why, whether it had to do with basketball or what. And um, I was a student there. I knew where things were. So we went over to the sports information department, um, and I, uh, you know, that he wanted to talk to the sports information director at that time, whose name was Phil Burke. Uh, and Phil Burke asked, you know, uh, you know, how about you? You know, you need a job? Speaking to me. And I said, yeah, the next thing I know, I'm working in the sports information department and running mimeograph machines. Uh, The younger listeners can go to Google and find out what one of those things was. Uh, At 2 o'clock in the morning with lineups for eight-word shells on the the Harlem River, um, it was entirely happenstance, just literally one afternoon. One guy said, hey, do you need a part-time college job? I said, yes, and, uh, and there we were. Uh, there, there, there's, there's a little, a little more serendipity to the story too. Um, if you don't mind me talking too much on this one, please. This was in the, this was in the middle '60s, um, and there was, uh, there was a war going on in the middle '60s, and one of the people who was a leader in the sports information department, a gentleman named Bill Shannon, he's gone now. He died quite tragically about ten years ago. Uh, Bill was working there. And Bill got drafted. And in New York at that time, which I didn't know when I went there, uh, the newspaper business, uh, basically the media business, but essentially the newspapers, because remember back then there were a lot of them, uh, were extensively peopled by Columbia Journalism School graduates and Columbia products. It was just the, just the way it was. Columbia was kind of a feeder system into the sports departments. Well, Bill, Bill was the stringer for the New York Times. He was the stringer for the Herald Tribune. He was the stringer for the Journal American. Uh, he worked on the table crew at Madison Square Garden. Well, Bill Shannon got drafted. And they turned to me and Bill said, would you like, you know, can you do all this stuff? Next thing I know, I'm in the press box at Jets games. I'm in the press. I'm on press row at Madison Square Garden for seven or eight years. Uh, again, total serendipity. Not a single bit of this was ever planned. But boy, did they give me a front row seat to a lot of great stuff. Yeah, and for those who are paying attention, uh, the uh, brother that uh, Jim is uh, referring to is the uh, legendary Jerry Trecker, who uh, was a longtime uh, sports writer for the Hartford Current, I, almost exclusively his career, right? I think. Yes, mm-hmm. he was a high school teacher and a full-time journalist for, gee whiz, oh gosh, from the time he was 16, um, was a teacher at 16, but from the time he was 16 until he retired uh, from the current, gosh, it's got to be, it's got to be 45 years. So you're you're doing sports information stuff, so you're kind of learning 
sort of by, you know, by uh, activity, right, more than anything else or osmosis. Uh, is it oh, yeah. I'm yeah. It's something you're even I'm assuming it's actually interesting and 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 a bit fun. And I'm just curious as to hear what, what you're sort of going through, what kind of experiences you're going through. And then perhaps beyond sort of the uh, the day to day of Ivy League sports uh, management, so to speak, how that uh, trickles out, I guess, perhaps into uh, the bigger world outside those uh, eight schools in that league. What happened was I had been I had worked at the Hartford Current in the in the summertime, and I, I guess perhaps it's a little overblown, but I, I would consider myself a, a sports journalist even at the age of fifteen, sixteen. Uh, I've never had a problem writing the English language. Never had a problem sitting down and pretty quickly uh, banging out a you know a game story and so forth. So we got to the sports information department there, and somebody would say, hey, you know, you know. We need somebody's got to go up, go go up to Baker Field and and do the baseball game and send the New York Times seventy five words and the Herald Tribune a hundred words and so forth, and and that was very easy for me to do uh, because I, I for whatever reason I had that facility and little by little I got to meet all of these people I got to meet Arthur Daly I got to meet Jim Roach the sports editor of the New York Times I would take these stories downtown and hand them in. Uh, it, it sounds naive, but that's that's what the era was like. There, were, there was no electronic, uh, you know, communication. You you frequently took things down and you dropped them off, and you got to meet the great writers. Uh, I, they certainly didn't necessarily know who I was, but it was a tremendous entree. Uh, I, yeah, I went to work and typed the play-by-play in the press box for, for Jets games in the '60s uh, in the old AFL, and by that I got to meet. Um, Weeb Eubank. I got to meet Frank Ramos, who was their PR guy for 39 years. Uh, and when a job came up there, Frank called me. Again, just complete luck of the draw. And I guess if there's one thing I'd say to anybody, I think it probably still applies even in 2018, as it did in 1964. If you want to get into the industry, do anything, run the mimeograph machine, so to speak, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and meet everybody you possibly can, because that's that's what happened to me, and it just happened that jobs came. Uh, I was a very, very lucky, lucky individual, and I, there's, I, I, there's no other reason. I don't think I was better than you know a lot of other guys on the scene at the time. I just happened, I, for whatever reason, in the right right place when the, when the clock struck. Well, you weren't even in the journalism school at Columbia, right? You were a liberal arts guy. No, no liberal arts. No, I didn't. I've never taken a journalism course in my life. So, so what were so what were the sort of the first jobs? I mean, you're mentioning uh, being in the in, in the Jets sort of orbit, and you're obviously uh, yeah. shuttling copy from uh, from the university to the various desks and stuff uh, throughout the city. So, w- what was what are sort of your first sort of professional entrees, and then how does that uh, maybe shape what you think maybe this career might be, despite you not pursuing it in the first place? Right, right. Uh, um... I got. I just got to tell you one thing. I mean, it, it sounds so bizarre to say in in, um, in in 2018, because it doesn't really happen anymore. This idea of stringing and calling in from a university with with 50 words on the swimming meet or 50 words on the uh, on, on the eight oared shell regatta. Uh, but that that's what that's what used to happen, and the newspapers used to cover all of that stuff. And I got paid. The greatest thing of all was when the Journal American would call. Jesse Abramson would call and would say that, um, you know, we need, we, you know, can, can you do the fencing this week, the Ivy League fencing? And I'd say yes. And they paid me $7.50. <laughs> and holy cow, 
that was a time when I could get a pizza dinner for two bucks. So I was I was over the over the moon on that. It was a for me it was a was a was just sound money it was unbelievable. Um, but uh, it, 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 after I graduated in '67, I worked full time. I became a full time employee of the sports information department at that point. Irving Marsh, a great legendary writer of college sports for the Herald Tribune. Uh, had become the sports information director, a, a, a temporary and holding pattern uh, until the other guy came back uh, from his his military service. Um, and uh, I was working full time there. And the Jets called uh, and asked if I would be interested in interviewing because they had grown so quickly and so so uh, you know um, chaotically a bit with Joe Namath and a Super Bowl team and Don Maynard and this and that um, that they needed an assistant. They had only had one PR person. Uh, so I went down and, uh, and and I got a job there in the uh, spring of 1969, and that's the first professional job that I had. I had been in and around professional sports, particularly basketball and boxing, uh, through Madison Square Garden. But I, I was a I was a, a table crew, a statistician, a helper, a backstage person. Now with the Jets was my first job, uh, and I was uh, the ripe age of 23, and working alongside. Uh, Joe Namath and Matt Snell and Weeb Bank and got to meet, uh, you know, so many people in the game. I mean, I, to this day, I remember how nice a guy like Lamar Hunt was to me. Just a young kid. Lamar didn't have to pay attention to me, but he did. Both he and his wife, Norma, were extremely, extremely kind to a young kid uh, making his way. And I liked it. I liked it. I stayed at the Jets for seven years and, and uh would have stayed longer, but there was uh, no no prospect of really going up the ladder there. So uh, I made a move, and that was to the New York Cosmos. Well, and, and before we get to the uh, to the the Cosmos, I mean, uh, you know, what a time to be there at the Jets, right? I mean, uh, and we've had plenty of conversations that have uh, touched either indirectly or directly on the life of of Lamar Hunt, the AFL. Uh, and you, obviously, you, you're talking about a team, the, the New York Jets, that uh, was uh, for many years uh, in the AFL early days as the Titans and then as the Jets themselves, uh, you know, basically the number two pro football team in, in town. And and things change, of course, with that Super Bowl three victory. Um, I'm just curious, any sort of uh, uh, recollections of sort of the let's call it the uh, the somewhat inelegant or maybe not so uh, smooth uh, transition from the world of the AFL to being the AFC conference of the NFL? And maybe almost at the point where the uh, the Jets, uh, you know, regardless of what specific league they were in at, at the time, really were sort of coming into their own and becoming a force to be reckoned with football-wise in the, in, uh, in New York. Yeah, New York, um, in, the, uh, in the 60s in, and uh, even into the uh, – it's kind of hard to put a time frame on it, but certainly in the 60s, the Giants uh, dominated New York – uh, even with the Jets becoming fairly successful in the AFL and playing what we in the I was always an AFL fan before I long before I started working there. You know, a bit more freewheeling type of football. It was much more um, exuberant than the somewhat staid NFL. Uh, as it were, and it was a bit hard for the Jets to break in. Almost, it, it, you know, it still exists today. Uh, the Giants are really deeply, deeply into the into New York society, and always have been. Same way the Yankees are 
uh, with respect to the Mets. And I'm not not talking about you know who's got Giancarlo Stanton and and who's got Jacob Degrom or who's winning or who's losing. There's a there's a, the Yankees are really part of a heartbeat of New York, and so are the Giants, and they certainly were then. And I'll tell you the the a great great day in Jets history. Uh, in terms of this topic of winning a place in New Yorkers' hearts and minds was the summer of 69 at Yale Bowl when for the first time the Jets played the Giants and we won rather handily uh, that day in Yale Bowl. And that was a big, big psychological. I, mean, I think you might go so far as to say some people uh, on on my side of the of the of the divide uh, would say we told you so. You know, we're pretty we're pretty darn good. Uh, so there, and that was that was a, that was a that was a big moment uh, for the Jets. Uh, the Giants uh, were were not as good then as they had been and would become again. Uh, and I think that day in Yale Bowl really, really did help. But it, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. The Jets have always been kind of the renegade team, uh, as the Mets have been. The Mets have always been that team from Queens. And, boy, you got the Bronx Bombers. How do we fight? How do you fight against a team which has won 400 World Series, you know, and had everybody in the Hall of Fame? Uh, it's just, 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 just the way it was. I think there was a little bit of a – Superiority complex from the Giants uh, toward the Jets, a little bit of disdain, uh, and the best thing you could do was beat them. Well, sure, and look, and uh, you're 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 there at a time when they're they're moving from this uh, upstart AFL to the legitimacy of being integrated into the NFL, uh, a Super Bowl three victory that uh, solidifies the uh, uh, equivalence, if not even superiority, uh, on any given Sunday. Uh, of any team in the league, and um, uh, and what a ride, right? You're you're in the midst of you know ostensibly the uh, the the biggest uh, professional league at the time, and it had to be an interesting perch, not only uh, to learn sort of the trade and the craft of what uh, of what sports journalism and information is and was, but uh, probably the connections too. No, yeah, it, it was very high paced. I'll say that it was a very high paced era. Uh, if anything, it's it's a hundred times worse now. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have any of the things that had to be dealt with. But it was it was urgent. It was exciting, and it was important. Uh, Joe Namath was important. Fran Tarkenton was important. And I had come from the Ivy League, which we thought was important, but was Ivy League sports. Let's be honest about it. And now it's very important. People want to know what's going on. There was the Bachelors Three thing in 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 1969. Can you imagine? I mean. Uh, uh, is, you know, this athlete, uh, Joe, was accused of this and that and running a, you know, a shady establishment there. Uh, this stuff was huge, huge front page news. And you had you had you had to learn quickly uh, to deal with it, which I, I guess I did. The other aspect of it, though, and I don't I, I, I know this doesn't exist now. Uh, I haven't I haven't now done true public relations or information work for for a while um, but there is not the bond any longer between teams and journalists as there was back then um, they were part of the family um, and they they kept things quiet um, 
I'm not going to say whether that was good, bad, or indifferent. That's the way it was, though. They traveled on the plane. They knew everything. In fact, the philosophy, if I, is, if I can explain it, is we in the public relations business, me at the Cosmos, where I headed the department, uh, me at the Jets, where I was number two, and uh, Frank was number one, uh, the philosophy was always, we need to know more than the journalists do so that we don't get ambushed by anything. And that was pretty easy to maintain then because players weren't tweeting, players weren't on Facebook, players weren't doing what players do now. Players didn't have any posse around them. Players didn't have any agents swarming around them. You walked up to the locker in the locker room and you talked to them. Um, uh, it was a it was a naive era, but it, it was a lot simpler. But everybody was part of the big family. I, I don't know for for sure, but I don't think many teams have their media fly with them on the jet or pl- hold the plane until the uh, PR guy in his rented car races mad dash down the down the uh, the runway to get to, to the charter jet with the last two or three journalists. I don't think that goes on anymore. But it did then, and it gave us the ability to. Let journalists know what was going on with the team, with the with the faith that they wouldn't damage damage anybody. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, see, that's interesting. And and um, I, I quick uh, a quick diverge here because I think it's it's important. Right? I think it's uh, also you know one. I got to think it's by comparison uh, so much uh, diff, more difficult and uh, harder to sort of keep a lid on, so to speak. Uh, news and information, given the sort of fast paced and social media and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so the the job, the role of being sort of the uh, PR or communications handler or uh, uh, you know uh, overseer of of a team and and the players and all that kind of stuff, it's just got to be infinitely more more difficult. But I think it's also though, and you, you're the pro. Tell me if you you agree. Um, it, it almost seems to me it's been met with uh, at the same time uh, a rise in I would I would argue more a sophisticated uh, uh, monologue from the teams and the leagues themselves that, to the point of them being their own publishers of information and media companies in their own right. Whether it's to the you know to the level of an actual network or frankly some of these league sites and and, and information right and maybe the, maybe the fans don't necessarily treat it as objective, but it it certainly is a it's a um, a pipeline of information shall we say that almost feels like in many cases, like a news service, which is, frankly, very different than where it was in the 60s, 70s, and, and even 80s, right? I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that I think to some extent, to a great extent, that is a result of the fact that teams and leagues have put great walls up around themselves. Uh, for example, back in my era... <laughs> which was a long time ago. Uh, these kids today, they don't know, right? Yeah, sure. They don't know anything. <laughs> uh, but back, back then, and I'm going to, this goes all the way through, all the way through the 80s. It goes into the beginnings of MLS in the 90s and continues in some, uh, some places today. But media had tremendous access. You could go into the Jets locker room any day that you wanted to as a journalist with, uh, at the, with the Jets. Um, and there, there might be a day where only two guys showed up. There might be a day when 15 guys showed up. Uh, but you didn't need it. You, you weren't given a PR handler. You could go in, and they would respect the fact that 11 a.m., the players went on the field. Um, now, from what I 
read and hear uh, from people still in the industry. You know, if, if you know Wednesday from one to one thirty, the uh, X teams locker room will be open to the media. I mean, th- there's almost no free give and take access anymore. And I think it's contributed to the walls going up on both sides. We will make our own news. We will tell you what we want to tell you by by Twitter or our website. Um, and you really won't have a whole lot of opportunity to talk about it. You could talk to Webu Bank. You could talk to Charlie Winner. Uh, you could you could talk to uh, Tom Landry. Pretty much any day of the week, you know, maybe not for 45 minutes, but you could grab them at the side of the practice field. You could grab them in the locker room. That doesn't happen anymore. And I personally think that it's made um, made a lot of distance, but 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 between uh, fans, it's become very very unreal. Uh, and it is, it's just uh, players have become brands. You see, very highly protected brands. Uh, instead of athletes, it's just it's just a very different era. I, I don't know. It's it's neither good nor bad. I mean, I certainly still watch, so I'm not gonna not gonna complain about it. But it's very different, and I, for one, would probably have a very hard time working working in that atmosphere nowadays. After a, after a Jets game, there was there was no live ESPN. There were no backdrops. There were no curtain walls. There was no private room with speakers and plug-ins for, and TV cameras. You know what, you know what happened? This goes all the way through the seventies. Um, the coach would, would come out of his office. We would tell him, okay, we, everybody's, you know, they're all, they're all hanging around, come out and he'd stand and they would stand around in a circle. I guess nowadays the accepted term is a gaggle. Uh, and he, and we would talk for 10 or 15 minutes and answer everybody's questions. Then he'd go back to his office. Very simple, but now it's all very, very stage managed. Very stage managed. All right. Well, I want to use that uh, that little uh, uh, definition of stage managed because uh, I think it's a it's a nice metaphor uh, or example or or uh, a visual image uh, that maybe sets the tone for your segue into this uh, thing called the uh, New York Cosmos. Um, and and I'll we'll get to what I'm talking about in a, in a couple of minutes. But um, before we do that. Can you give our audience a, a bit of a sense of uh, where you are with the Jets and how this Cosmos thing came about? Did you even know about professional soccer? Were you even oh, aware yeah. of it? And you know, because oh, obviously oh, yeah. in the late '60s, and we've had many a bunch of episodes on on the the various uh, ill-fated uh, starts and stops of, of professional soccer in this country in the in the late '60s after the World Cup in '66. But I'm just curious as to like. How did the conversation get going? How did you know about it? And and were you even was soccer even on your radar as a professional place to maybe even go career wise? Um, absolutely on my radar, but not necessarily as a place to go career wise. I, that I hadn't given any thought to. But I had been, I had gone to games at Randall's Island. I uh, I'm one of the uh, the Americans who saw the English beat us ten to nothing at Randall's Island. I think it was in 1964. Whenever Pelé came to town, I bought a ticket and sat in the in the bleachers, which actually are good seats for soccer uh, at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I always I always followed the sport from the time I can she was I can remember maybe you know ten eleven years old. Um, my brother had a shortwave radio. I ultimately got one, and you could listen. You'd listen every Saturday to the BBC, and they would uh, read off all of the scores, and you'd find out uh, if Fulham won or these magical names like Gillingham and Huddersfield and Manchester United. Uh, and I've, I've just followed the sport all my all my uh, all my life. 
but never, never, never. When I was when I was entering the job market and so forth, there really wasn't a lot of soccer um, when I started in Colombia. Um, but then in 1967, there was a league. I forgot. I now totally forgotten. No. League. Come on now, Jim. There were two leagues. You should know this. There were two leagues. That's right. One of them is completely forgotten. Yeah, well, so uh, you need to go back into our our, our treasure trove of archives and uh, and learn about that. But but no, there actually there were, I, you know, this is not a, a lesson here, but there were three leagues actually that, that actually all sort of got the uh, sort of uh, excitement of, uh, of post-World uh, Cup excitement in 66. And then uh, I guess cooler heads prevailed and then only two leagues decided to launch in 67. And that was just you know, a disaster. But I, I, it's interesting, I, I, as you're in the job market and you're working in, you know, with the Jets and all that stuff, I'm just, I'm surprised or, or curious to see what your knowledge of what pro soccer was in those fledgling days. Uh, it I, was I, it was very high. I was probably the, uh, one of the handful of Americans who was the, uh, who was a buyer of all of the early editions of the Rothmans football annual. And when we saw the New York Jets signed a kicker named Bobby Howfield, if you go back through the old Jets media guides, there's a very bizarre little part of them, and that's that in his in his biography you will find his pro football career and his pro soccer career, because the nerd that I was was able to piece all that together. Not all, of course by talking to him, but I had all of the records from the Rothmans football annual, and that was considered to be somewhat bizarre by the people around the Jets, but I said, no, no, I want to put this paragraph in there. I mean, I, 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 I was always, always drawn to the sport. So uh, how did the Cosmos come about for you? Um, aware of them before or somebody tapped oh, yeah. on the shoulder and go, hey, kid, there's this team called the Cosmos. Ever heard of them? No, I was certainly aware of them. And then, uh, and then of course, they signed Pelé. And um, we practiced, uh, the Jets practiced at, at Hofstra. And the Cosmos practiced at Hofstra on different sides of a fairly vast parking lot, and um, they came to they came to me. It, had to, it was in '75. I, I, I'm pretty sure yeah, it had to be in '75, um, and asked if there was any possibility that they could get a picture with Pelé and Joe Namath together. So I, I I went to Namath and he said, sure, that's absolutely fine. You know, I'll, I'll, I, if I recall correctly. We walked over, Joe and I walked over after our practice, the parking lot, and uh, met Pelé. And there's, there's a, a great picture, and I've still got it um, signed by each of them. And that was, that was it, just a simple request. And Joe said, yes, so we did it. End of story. But then several weeks later, could even have been months. I, I, I don't know the timing. It's right months. It's now back during the regular season of the Jets and uh, one day at practice, we were there, and the Cosmos were across the way, and a guy walks across the parking lot and says, effectively, Clive Toy would like to talk to you. So I went to talk to Clive Toy, and in January of 1976, I joined the Cosmos. To so, quite a few raised eyebrows, I, 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 I might say. I still have a very, very lovely letter from Pete Roselle thanking him for all my years in the NFL and, and wishing me the best of luck, but there were a lot of people who said, you leaving the NFL for soccer, you know, what's wrong with you? Well, I knew there wasn't anything wrong with me because here was Pelé. Okay, so I want to I back up for a second and then get into the reason why, but uh, am I correct in remembering or understanding that uh, that uh, little get-together between uh, Messrs. Namath and uh, uh, Donessimento, uh, uh, it w- was um, 
Was it the uh, a picture of them both uh, heading different balls? That is, uh, Joe Namath heading a soccer ball while Pele was heading a a football. Do you remember this picture at all? I remember the picture. I don't. That's not the one I have, but I do remember that picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I, that will be on our website because that's a, it's an, a, in my mind is an iconic picture of a two. Uh, legendary stars in their own sports, uh, you know, hamming it up uh, uh, with uh, with uh, uh, the the, uh, the ball of their uh, com- uh, their other sports, which is I think is pretty pretty interesting stuff. But uh, I got to imagine that uh, clearly got some uh, some attention, and obviously in New York, not an easy thing to do. How does um, how does Clive uh, convince you that uh, this uh, still ragtag and somewhat unproven uh, league, let alone Cosmos? team uh was well jumping for i've i've told him uh long after the fact that he really didn't have to do a whole lot of convincing the 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 chance to uh become a department head at a major team that was on the move and to work with palais was uh um, i would have paid for the opportunity but i'm quite happy that he decided to pay me worked out pretty nicely Having having had an opportunity to uh, work with uh, Joe Namath and then Pelé was just, uh, uh, you know, it, beyond a dream come true. Uh, so it really didn't take a lot of a lot of convincing. Plus, I'd been at the Jets for seven years, and uh, it was time. It was time. All right. So explain to me then uh, how Clive sets up the uh, the opportunity. Right, Pelé. Let's for to put it in context. Right, Pelé comes in. Uh, to literally a press madhouse, yeah. uh, at the uh, Twenty One Club uh, in the uh, uh, I guess it's June of of seventy five. June of seventy five, yeah. Makes a huge splash. Uh, Downing Stadium, national television, uh, CBS at the time, if you can believe it. Jack Whitaker with a an eloquent, uh, uh, almost sartorial uh, uh, editorial at the end of the game about sort of the future of the sport, and in many respects, very correctly uh, astute uh, observer of the game. And obviously, he's not only Pele taking the uh, uh, the New York metropolitan area by storm uh, and uh, shooting a huge shot in the arm to uh, a fledgling team that uh, most people didn't even know about, uh, but the league itself and obviously worldwide attention. Um, that's got to be a heady opportunity for somebody like you, not only to run a department, but in essence, uh, have the tiger by the tail, if you will, with probably arguably at the time. Uh, the world's most famous uh, professional sports player uh, on your team. Yeah, I think there's no doubt in that definition. Um, in that era, uh, I, I really do think there's only two sportsmen uh, who, who dominated the world like like, uh, like that, and that's Pele and Muhammad Ali. Uh, I, I don't I don't discount you know <laughs> the great golfers and uh, you know. Bobby Orr and so forth, but uh, when you talk about worldwide recognition, it's Pele and Muhammad Ali, and yeah, it was a, it was a great it was a great opportunity, uh, daunting. But I had spent seven years um, in and around the NFL and in and around Joe Namath, who who was a pretty pretty big celebrity, uh, never caused any problems. But you got used to dealing with what the the big time requests and so forth. You 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 dealt with. All of the top newspaper and television people in the war, or in the, in the certainly in the country, uh, and to some extent in the world. The NFL, of course, not being so big in the world, but none of that none of that was particularly unusual for me. What was what was going to come was just the cascade of uh, of interest and uh, and requests and 
and and need to manage his time properly and so forth and bond with him, which I was luckily quite able quite able to do, I guess, because we we ended up with a really really warm, uh, terrific relationship. There, we would we Pelé and I would meet once a week, sometimes twice a week, in his office. He had an office uh, in Rockefeller Center within the within the Cosmos offices, and um, I I was I would log all of the requests that had come, whether it was from Sesame Street or the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or the or the London Daily Mail. Here's everybody who wants to talk to you. And here are the six or seven that I think you should do and I here's why you should do them because it's it's Eddie Pope in Miami and it's a new market and so forth. Blah blah blah. Um I'd give him six or seven knowing that he would pick four or five and we ended up very happy at the end of each of those at the end of each of those meetings. But it took a great deal of organization and a gr- a great deal of uh, of energy and faith on his part that we at the Cosmos were properly taking good care of him, which we were. I, I, I think one of the reasons that Clive reached out, you'd have to ask him, but I think one of the reasons Clive reached out uh, to somebody like me was that I had had experience at, uh, in the so-called big time and wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be at all frazzled by uh, you know, 200 phone calls a day. Well, let's let, right on that, but, well, but let, I knew what I was getting into. Yeah, so let's let's put that in context, right? Because um, you know, this is a team, obviously, with Pele's arrival, right? It's um, I mean, it's going from zero to a hundred, literally, right? Yeah. Um, in the yeah. span of six months, right? And here you are, six months after that fact, um, you know, the team is obviously on the ascendant, right? Uh, going to Yankee Stadium, which is you know finally re- been refurbished. Um, and uh, look, you're also, you know, this is not just about Pele, but this is this is a team, right? This is Steve Ross. This is the Erdogan brothers. This is Clive Toy. This is, you know, what next? How do you complement Pele with other players of similar or even uh, arguably almost over time, maybe uh, equal or, or better caliber, right? Uh, uh, may, give us some sense of what you inherited and what you think you were were what you were told that that the vision was i'm curious as to what the vision was at that time because it seems like it was at least beginning to get in motion but clearly pele is only one piece of arguably a bigger puzzle albeit a large right, one right. and I, I i think that handling the media uh was something that they were not at all prepared to do at the time no slur whatsoever on the people who preceded me there to the to the contrary but I mean, this was this was one 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 hell of a of a player signing, and, and changed what had been a, a relatively sleepy several member office into something where suddenly the phones were ringing off the hook to buy tickets. Phones were ringing off the hook from every journalist around the world uh, who wanted to talk to this guy. They wanted to come and see the Cosmos. They wanted to come to the United States, and it it uh, it needed to be wrestled into shape so that it became organized and efficient so that everyone we at the we wanted to have it happen that at the end of the day everybody could say i got my job done and that was the coach that was pele that was his teammates that was me that was the journalists and when all of those pieces fell began to fall into order uh, and I'm not going to take any any credit. It's everybody working together to do this, and I can tell more about that. Uh, you began to get the sense of the cosmos as 
a unified force, the cosmos as a brand, the cosmos as a thing that, that, that you could understand and deal with. Remember, um, uh, it, it, I just have to, to keep reminding people there were not these 24-hour-a-day tweets and stuff going on. It was, it, was a, it was a simpler time. So the element of media and marketing was critically important because it was your window to, to the world. And once we got all that whipped into line, um, and that meant negotiating with uh, with Gordon Bradley and Eddie Fermani. We need to, you know, can I have a media opportunity at 11 a.m.? No, you're going to practice. Okay, can I have it at 12:15? Everybody doing their part, and we had a. Finally, we were not making it up day by day. It was very well organized and very carefully planned so that everybody got what they needed on a given day. I think that's the I think that's the the, the secret to what we did at the at, at, at the Cosmos. So would you would you say 1976 was kind of that year of that sort of really transition from you know 75 ragtag Pele boom and then kind of you know shaping that and, and and corralling that into something that then could be furthered in the years following. Yeah, getting getting it into an orderly way so that post game was run in a certain manner. Um, the locker room doors would be open only when I decided they'd be open, and that doesn't make me any sort of you know decider, as it were. But it, there was there was a rhythm to everything, and once everybody got on board with the rhythm, I don't th- I don't think you'd find a journalist out there who has an unhappy day uh, of memory about dealing with the cosmos. And uh, I, I did play a role in that, but I mean, it, it, it was because Steve Ross and Amit and, and Clive and Gordon Bradley and everybody bought into it. It was a, a real, real heartfelt missionary enterprise to make this thing big and do it well. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's... Uh... Let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also uh, in my queue next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the uh, daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, 
a wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. When did you know that this thing was going to be big and maybe, frankly, even bigger than even you might have, have, might have imagined? I'm sure in 76, you know, some of the seeds were there, right? But, you know, um, you know, in the, in the years that followed, I mean, it just went to meteoric uh, kind of status. I mean, what was it? Players? What was it? The fans? What was it? The media? What was it? Uh, lightning in the bottle in some respects? Was it Warner Communications and all the the star, you know, pixie dust that came with that. What, what do you, you know, when did you sort of know that this was bigger than even just a, a sports team on the on the New York sports market landscape? Probably early '77. Um, we had a we had preseason games which were highly anticipated. This, this was remember, the, 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 this was in the new this was in the brand spanking new Giant Stadium after '76 and Yankees right. in '77 right. at Giant Stadium, right. which is completely brand new and huge. Moved to Giant Stadium. The only people that had ever played there were the Giants, which I think then was seven games. So we were, you know, pretty virgin territory over there. Uh, and um, the, the stadium was an attraction factor, absolutely. And the the Erdogan brothers um, and Steve Ross and Jay Emmett, uh, Rafael de la Sierra, had, they had a big vision. They had a big, big vision to become the best team in the world. They were, they were trying to create what we now kind of have at Man City or uh, Chelsea of a year ago or Real Madrid, you know, the, the greatest team in the world. And when you, when you move to – you've got Pelé. We made the playoffs in 76. Unfortunately, I got bounced out. I think it was in the first round. Um, by, by the beginning of 77 – the rumors were all over the place that we were not done signing big names. And then, you know, Beckenbauer comes, Canalia comes. There, there was a froth which was um, created not for marketing purposes, not just, be, just for the heck of it by, uh, by Warner, but because they wanted to have the greatest team in the world. They wanted to have the greatest stars. It was a company of stars. And whether it was lightning in a bottle or just a, a critical mass, um, by spring of 77, it was pretty clear that big stuff was happening. Big, big stuff. And we didn't really fully know about the Father's Day in June when we put in 62,000. And we certainly didn't know about the 77,691 in, in August. But that, that, that was, that, that's in retrospect. And you have to remember, we were. Uh, we we had the, the I don't know if the tiger had us by the tail I'm not sure which way it was that year but it was one 
one ride, let me tell you, because it just kept growing and growing and growing. You know, and then out of nowhere, this, this guy Carlos Alberto comes. You know, only the greatest defender probably, you know, in, certainly in South American history, maybe in World Cup history. It just didn't stop. And it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So was this all emanating from Steve Ross? Was this just the, you know, because it was part of an entertainment, uh, you know, major company at the time that it was just a natural sort of, I'm just kind of, you know, as a fan, as a kid watching these games, right? I mean, obviously mesmerized by the quality of talent, but it seemed that, you know, price was no object, right? And you can make the argument no. why that's not going to last right over time, but um, uh, it's just it just seems almost uh, uh, completely uh, at another level, right? Then sort of just operating a team in a league and hoping for, you know, oh yeah, crap. oh absolutely. The, uh, they were never satisfied just operating a team. They they were um, they were gentlemen who um, who were regularly surrounded by. Uh, you know, Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger and Roberta Flack and Diana Ross. You look up at the executive box at Giant Stadium, there was always somebody there who was a huge name in the entertainment industry. And that's that that, that was that was their that was their mindset and they they wanted to do the same thing with their sports team. We're gonna be the biggest, we're gonna be the most famous, we're gonna be the brassiest, we're gonna be the best. And they were. It couldn't have all, all gone smoothly though, right? Not only growing pains, but I, I, uh, it seems that not only on the field, but also off the field, they're just a plethora of egos. And, you know, especially as this thing took off, sells out and becomes a phenomenon, right? A, a, the play, a place to be, not just on the sports map, but just in the, in, in the world of entertainment and culture. I mean, it became quite the thing for the, for a good portion of, of 77 through 79, arguably 80. Um, how do you handle this from it becoming you know, completely out of control and, and off the rails, right? I mean, again, coming from 1976 in the beginning, right, where it's like we need to professionalize this to the point of maybe even being supremely professional can't, can't even keep up with this rocket ship. I think we did. I think we did a pretty good job of keeping up with it, to be perfectly honest with you. Interesting. Had a very good staff, um, very good people, by and large, working uh, uh, exhausting hours, all the time to keep up with it, but it, it you know, it, it did certainly have its challenges. Uh, there were internal challenges. We, you know, we changed coaches in in, in the middle of the year. There were certainly uh, there was certainly some agita about that uh, internally. Uh, but I think the I think the most important thing that you do, and I I I, I think that if maybe maybe if anybody could penetrate what actually happens at the New England Patriots. Um, Maybe it's the same thing, and that's that good people just go to work and continue to do their jobs, and things will fall into place. I don't recall ever in 77 anybody getting flustered, anybody saying, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can, uh, there are plenty of times when I was, oh, my God, I'm not going to get home tonight until midnight, but that's a, that's, a, that's a different reaction. That's a different reaction. Uh, we all just put our heads down and got the job done. And I, I, I can't really uh, say anything, anything more than that. I mean, not every day was smooth, of course. It's not smooth anywhere in any, in any sport. But uh, it, there was never a day that wasn't fun, I'll tell you that. It was fun. So when, when the team wins the, champ, the first championship, well, not the first, they're actually second championship in 77, and then Pele is basically his, his last game and obviously the final match in his career as well at Giant Stadium a week later. Um, 
Did you and or members of the team kind of worry about, well, okay, the Pele effect is over? Um, is this going to last? Uh, is, does it all go away when he, you know, retires? Did anybody, did that creep into anybody's mind despite all the other talent that had been assembled uh, to support? Well, I think that it's, cer- it's certainly crept into, uh, into, into my mind. It's certainly, uh, I, I, I can't speak for what may have been thought uh, on the 29th floor of uh, at, at 75 Rock, but um, you'd have to be kind of naive not to realize uh, that uh, you know the, the, the greatest name in the game is you know is no longer going to put a uniform, and it's got to have some effect on the the overall position of the team in the town. But remember, we had Carlos Alberto, we had Bogachevich, we had Canalia, who arguably became as big or bigger fan favorite over his time than Pelé did. So I don't think anybody was concerned that uh, that uh oh. You know, one of the big uh, legs of the stool has been knocked out. Now, I think we were very confident that the sport had grown enormously. Fans had come to see the Cosmos play an attractive, quality game of soccer, and that they would keep coming. And I'm not sure we were wrong on that. I, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that you can say that you know Pelé's retirement in any way affected you know the ultimate demise of the NASL, which of course didn't happen for seven more years. So. Well, no, I mean, we, we, we were pretty sure we had we had we had a big time franchise there, and it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the stats. I mean, like actually, like the nineteen seventy eight season, you could make the argument is probably the best season of 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 the entire uh, team's history, right? Because it, it was they were just dominant from start to finish. There was so much excitement and quality and and attendance records and all that kind of stuff. And that was obviously the the year without Pele, the first one. Uh, yeah, yeah. After let me so let me ask you this. So so uh, obviously, as being sort of the uh, uh, the point person for all kinds of uh, communications and media and uh, and press and whatnot for uh, not only the NASL's most uh, famous and dominant team, but uh, you know, arguably one of uh, America's uh, uh, dominant uh, named sports franchises and arguably soccer's worldwide. Um, what was your sense about what was going on in the rest of the league? Um, you know, around that time, because it's clearly the Cosmos were the uh, were the main attraction, right? There's no doubt that every time the Cosmos were coming into town, with or without Pele, uh, it was the event. But in some cases, in many of the, I don't know, 23 at that time, other teams in the league, uh, it was almost maybe the event of their entire season. Um, did you notice an inequity, an inequality, or a jealousy, or and or what actions were being uh, thought about or, or undertaken to either counter or I don't know, uh, throw shade, shall we say, towards the big and sometimes bad cosmos. Yes. I mean, before we get there, I'm sorry, I, I vividly remember, I remember reading something in the New York Daily News one Sunday about how good and dominant the cosmos were. And I remember, I don't know who, who wrote the two articles, but it was a point-counterpoint. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. Of I don't remember, no. It was, did the, should the cosmos be broken up? And somebody was arguing yes, and somebody was arguing no. I mean, that's a point, you know, in in, in culture and in, in in competition where you know that you're, you know, you, you've reached. That's pretty. That's pretty good. That's, that's damn good. Gotta dig that up. They... It, was, it was. I vividly remember. It was a Sunday spread, and it was. You know, I think Phil Wooston was the guy who was arguing for no. Uh, as a matter of fact, not to break him up. Well, break up the Yankees. Break up the. How many Stanley Cups did the Canadiens win in the fifties and sixties? You know, uh, it's the highest praise you can get. <laughs> Sure, but the <laughs> that they're too the good. Was there in the league, right? And and owners and and all that stuff. The question about keeping up with them. I just curious as to what your sense of, sense of all of that was, if there was any at that point. 
there was a, I'll tell you, there was a, a, a great palpable sense of wanting to beat the cosmos. I, I can't say that any colleagues from other teams, you know, were, you know, were difficult to deal with or angry or anything like that. But you knew that they were, they were sitting there in the days before the game and in the press box at the game, hoping like hell that, that, that they could take a bite out of us. That, that was just, uh, just natural to beat the big bad cosmos. I mean, the huge rivalry with Tampa Bay was, was pretty much out there. I mean, I was a big rival uh, in the public relations world for, uh, with Frank Marcos, who was the PR guy for Tampa. And there was no way I was in Frank Marcos's class. Uh, now we're great friends. But, but back then there was a real, real rivalry, more so than there was between uh, Jets and Giants in New York. There was a rivalry between Cosmos and pretty much the other, the other 23 I, I, the owners, the owners remember now. Pele's contract allowed for revenue sharing, so that the the basically all of the league teams pitched in to pay for the contract, but but they got this tremendous boost every you know when he would play in their stadium. So it, it worked out for everybody's benefit. The Cosmos uh, had assistance in paying the big bill on him, uh, and the other owners had a chance to uh, to. To, to bask in the glow uh, at least once a year. And then the agreement was if we didn't play on the schedule, we had to play an exhibition game, which we, we, end, we ended up playing in every every market and, and several others. Okay, well, wait a minute. That That's important. That's interesting. And I, I think that's maybe the first time I've ever actually heard that. So you're, you're basically saying that some of the other, the other teams in the league were, I don't want to say complicit, but were part of the mm-hmm. financial backing of the Pele factor, yes. economically. Yes, that's true. Interesting. Okay, so because I, I, you'd always thought that it, it, was, it was it was in effect a league undertaking, so that everybody everybody had a little bit of a, a of a hand in the pot. So they would get the benefit, the taste, right? So the the exhibition game against Seattle and the Kingdome opening that christening that that facility of fifty two thousand people. Yeah. Interesting. I yeah, we played we played in we played an old Balboa Stadium against a team called the San Diego Jaws because we didn't play in San Diego in the regular season, so we played an exhibition game there. We played in San Antonio against the Thunder in Alamo Stadium of of a um, I'm going to call it a simple facility um, because we didn't play in San Antonio, so we 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 hit all the markets and everybody had their uh, their their bite of the apple on that. Very interesting. Uh, in terms of press coverage, um, not only in New York, but nationally, I'm curious as to sort of the, the tone and the tenor of those covering the team. Uh, and I know we know some of the names of, of the folks who were at the time, but um, what do you think that it was because they, they were being covered and maybe there were differences between local and national or print and television? I'm curious to hear all that, too. Um was it more the team, and it's 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 something to be to be covered because people are paying attention, and thus the, you know, the on-field doings and the standings and the competition and all that stuff, or was it more the spectacle of what this thing was, you know, blowing up in in the late seventies in New York, or both? I th- I think it was a little of both. I think that there was a sense that of great legitimacy about the NASL in that at, at that era. Because of Pele, people began to take notice, and they realized that, hey, this is pretty good. There's some pretty good crowds in Portland, some pretty good crowds in Seattle, Tampa, um, cer- certainly New York. Um, yeah, you could I'm make the argument. Blank on some of the others. I mean, it, it was not a ju- 
we got the light was was finally shown on the NASL, and people said, "Hey, it's pretty good." And the coverage was 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 really quite uh, quite positive. And I would say that a lot of that is due to the fact that the NASL. I don't think explicitly, I don't recall that anybody gave a lecture and said this, but we were extremely open and available and honest and willing seven days a week to talk to you and meet with you and, uh, and, and sell ourselves to you. Uh, and, and people, people liked that. People liked that. LA of course was a huge, huge, um, his curiosity factor isn't quite the, the right word. It's a, that's, that's a little insulting. But we would go into, we went into Miami, and who, who wanted to talk to, who did I get to talk to Pele? I, I guess I shouldn't say who did I get, but who did I reach out to to give the private interview to? Eddie Pope, who I'm sure is not remembered, unless you're from the South Florida area, one of America's top sports columnists, um, highly involved in the NFL and so forth. Eddie Pope wanted to do a Pele piece. Minneapolis, Sid Hartman, same type of guy. New York, Dick Young, Pat Livingston in Pittsburgh. These were the big names. That's a famous story. So you want to regale a little bit of that? So you were part of the Dick Young sort of uh, the conversion story? Well, I don't know whether he ever got converted. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, but the I, background of it because I, I know this is as a New York you know kid. But what was the, what, Dick Young? Who was he, and, and why was it an important uh, thing to get him at least uh, in your orbit? In, in the 1960s and 70s, um, gee, I guess even in through the 80s, um, it, when, when a sports professional woke up in New York every morning, the first thing he did was read Dick Young. You needed to know what Dick Young was saying in the Daily News because it was important. And Dick was baseball, 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 and in his off hours, baseball. That's what he was. Uh, and getting him to be interested in this soccer thing was a long and difficult story. He finally came to a game. He sat with people who explained it to him, you know, didn't try to preach or anything like that. And he came away thinking, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. And he talked to, he could go and talk to Pele at the locker, just like he could talk at Yankee Stadium. It wasn't any big mystery. We were doing the same things, and we treated everybody the same way. And then he came to the realization, um, as several journalists did, that on a on on a on a day, it, I don't, I, I'm blank now as to whether it's the seventy-seven six ninety-one day. I think it's the sixty-two thousand Mother's Day in nineteen seventy-seven. There were more people at Giant Stadium than there were combo at Yankee and Shea. And that was a wake-up call. Yes, I think that was that was actually Father's Day. Uh, was it? Fa- 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 I'm, I'm sorry. Fa- I, I completely. Yeah, Father. It was June. Yeah, Father's Day, and that was a uh, a little bit of a come to Jesus moment that you deniers really couldn't deny anymore. Didn't mean yeah. Didn't mean you had to fall in love with us, but it tamped down a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the uh, soccer, the foreign sport, they wear short pants, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, uh, some of that still goes on today, but a lot of it went on then. Yeah, I think there was even a Bill Gallo uh, cartoon uh, that weekend uh, with yeah. uh, Bertha talking about uh, the crowd. at, uh, And I think she says, if I'm not mistaken, and again, I've got to find this visual, uh, her friend or her, her colleague who was with her uh, said, uh, what are we doing here at Giant Stadium? He says, well, you said to go where the crowd was going. 
Yep. Uh, yep. And that was a reference to the fact that there were two baseball games in town, I think, that same weekend that were... Yeah, very un- most unusually that both teams were home. But that's and, interesting, uh, though, right? Because it's it, the... I, I said conversion before, but the idea, frankly, that uh, you, you, it's pretty clear, right, that, that, you know, part of your job, your world, and your success, right, at the time with that team, right, was penetrating, I guess, sort of the uh, the classic definition of what pro sports was in this country, and bringing soccer at least to some level, maybe even occasionally above the same level uh, as these major entrenched uh, history-rich sports, uh, at least in this country. And that's that's saying something, especially in the world's most, or the United States at least, uh, most competitive sports market. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing that I brought to it, it's certainly, I'm not, don't think I was any greater than any other PR guy of the era in New York, but I had had, I had, had through my NFL years, I had gotten to know, to some extent, nearly all of these people, whether it was Blackie Sherrod in Dallas, and these are old-time names now, but these were the opinion makers uh, back then, and I just, I just happened to, you know, kind of have them uh, in my mental Rolodex from the years at the Jets, and uh, was able to, to parlay it, and, uh, uh, hey, you know something, you, you can become a good PR guy if you've got a good client. And I was lucky because I had Pele. Well, not only Pele, but also a, a star-studded array of of uh, of quality players. A stream it kept coming oh. and coming, coming and coming. Right? It was it was, you know, it was uh, I want to say it was an obsession, but it was certainly it was a desire to stay, to maintain, to become and maintain and stay as as prominent and dominant a, a team as you could be for as long for as for sure. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It became a it became a challenge as it did in the, my years at the Jets, and then later on in, in other things I've done. I couldn't have everybody talk to Pelé. You kind of had to sell some of the other guys because there's a little bit of there's a little bit of a locker room um, free zone, uh, shall I say? If uh, if nobody else is getting the interview requests and everybody's over in one corner, so you you, you want to make sure. Hey, you want to talk? You want to talk to, to Beckenbauer? He speaks fluent English. You know, oh, he does. I didn't know. I thought he was German. You know, he speaks fluent English, um, and so forth. You try to try to spread it around a little bit, so that um, Werner Roth feels that he's a, as much a part of the team as as is Pelé and as is Keith Eddy and Tony Field and uh, Terry Garbutt and so forth. And I, I think by and large, we had a pretty happy. Uh, locker room because everybody tried. Everybody realized who number ten was. There was no question about that. But um, everybody from the guys who booked the uh, public appearances um, to me to, to Clive tried to make sure that everybody uh, everybody was a, a a member of the team. I mean, it's it's easy to get an interview. If, if I call up somebody and say, "Hey, do you want to talk to Pele for thirty minutes?" Uh, I haven't found anybody yet who turned that one down. Uh, it's not quite as easy to, to, you know, to get somebody to talk to the others, but that, that we did, and we again continued to present ourselves as a major league team, not as a barnstorming traveling circus, because we were anything but. So as the late '70s uh, uh, went on, and the team established its dominance and broke records left and right, and just you know, the phenomenon was just sort of in full bore. I'm curious, did your, did your role change or did you find that uh, what was essentially a free hand uh, to kind of corral this uh, ascendant thing in 76 and 77 now well on its way and arguably through a lot of your efforts to, to make it so, um, 
you know, success has has many mothers, right? Uh, and um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people, uh, both big and small and in between, um, you know, felt or feel that they were part of that success or maybe mm-hmm. an outsized contributor or contributors to that success. Um, does your role change in any way, shape, or form? Does it get harder? Does it get easier? Do people meddle? Is it getting a little ego driven? Is it, you know, this is clearly something that's a, a bigger phenomenon that that most mortals, uh, and again, you have to understand the time could, could handle at this time. Was there any of that, or do you think you were, you know, was it all running smoothly as you think it could have? I think it was running pretty pretty smoothly. I would say that by the end of seventy uh, seven, early seventy eight. Um, uh, there might have been a little bit of an ego. We can do no wrong, uh, sort of philosophy. We are we are the cosmos, and you're not, type of thing. Um, I left the cosmos in '78 to go manage the public relations effort for the NASL because they too, at that time, were having a hell of a time corralling what was happening to the league. And I'd say that um, I was I, I I tried to instill the same sort of organizational and operational uh, things for the league as a whole um, as I had done for the Cosmos. And what uh, I don't know whether I was successful or not. It's it's too hard to tell because the league was pretty much um, pretty much big time at at that point. We were we were big. We had national television. Um, games were pretty, the attendance was pretty good and the media coverage was, uh, was astounding. Remember the league only started in 1968 and by, uh, you know, here, here's one for you in 1976 and 77, the New York cosmos had more journalists travel with them to road games than did the jets, the giants, the Yankees or the Mets. It's a, it's a soft little statistics, which is kind of only for the nerds to realize, but that's big time. We attracted more media coverage and expenditure, shall I say, um, than the other, the other so-called big-time teams did in New York. So we, we had broken through. How does the, uh, the migration to the league itself uh, happen? Because it's, uh, it's clear that uh, you know, if, if you're able to handle – you know, the biggest and uh, most uh, uh, high wattaged uh, team in the league, uh, who would be more qualified than to help the the 20, now 24 teams strong, or maybe not strong, uh, national coast-to-coast, two countries league, uh, take things to the next level? Because it would argue, arguably, from an outsider's perspective, there would seem to be a bit of an imbalance there league-wide, right? So for every Cosmos and mm-hmm. Tampa Bay and Seattle, right, you had a you know a Memphis Rogues or a Las Vegas Quicksilvers or Team Hawaii right and or, and right, teams right. moving all over the place. Um, Calgary guess, Boomers, there's one for you. Calgary Boomers, right? I got to think that there were you know uh, it almost feels like uh, you were ready made for sort of expanding your uh, your your chops, shall we say, beyond just this uh, Cosmos team to maybe spread the wealth a bit. You know, I, again, you'd have to ask Phil Woosnam, but we don't have the communications devices to reach him at the moment since he's passed away. Um, I think that it was they reached out to me probably with the idea that if you can if you can survive the maelstrom of the cosmos, um, maybe you can help us get some get 
you know, get some order and sense into what we're doing here because it had grown on their end just as big uh, as it had, you know, locally on the Cosmos end. At that point, we, gee whiz, there were, there were some teams with uh, big-time stuff going on at that at, at that time. Lee Stern was having some pretty good days in Chicago. Um, you know, you've mentioned Tampa, Portland, San Jose, uh, Seattle in particular, the Washington Diplomats under the Danzansky family. We had the Aztecs uh, trying to sign, which they ultimately did, uh, Johan Cruyff. I mean, there were a lot of moving pieces going on then. Uh, and um, it, it, it certainly didn't daunt me any. I had been around the league for a couple of years and knew all the owners and knew all the players and most of the coaches. So it was just a different chair to try to do the same thing, and that was just to be uh, available and uh, truthful and try to, try to you know, push the peanut forward on a given day. I, I used the word once before, but we all were missionaries at that time. I've never, for whatever we've all done in our careers, I've talked to many old NASLers about it. We, we've all pro- perhaps reached bigger pinnacles. Perhaps we've made bigger paychecks and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it, this is in the heart. There's not any one of us who doesn't say that the NASL was our greatest time of life. And we were just believed in what we were doing. Uh, and uh, for quite a long time, a lot of people uh, believed along with us. Well, it would seem circa 78, 79 that, uh, uh, that things were, you know, it, it were not only on the ascendance still, but, but you know, uh, in some respects was just a complete green field, no pun per se, uh, going forward. And... You know, I guess in retrospect, some of the cracks were starting to show. I mean, I alluded to 24 teams and, you know, uh, how many, you know, was that maybe eight teams too many at that point? And and so what do you think, you know, started to and then ultimately began to sort of unravel or, or, or go wrong? Was it a sort of a, a, a just a, a misshapen, you know, uh, strength versus uh, weaknesses? Or you're only as strong as your weakest link. Uh, what, what do you think sort of? you know, happened. I mean, the TV contract with ABC, you know, well, well heralded, but, you know, didn't sort of draw the numbers that people seem to be expecting. Um, what do you think it was that sort of, you know, and the league obviously was very successful on a number of different fronts, but obviously it was starting to get a little wobbly, right, as this 1980 came along. And I'm just curious as to what you were seeing as you inherited this, uh, the league mandate to, uh, to handle PR and communications and all that kind of stuff. Well, the, uh, there, there's a, a lot of theories, and the most prominent one about the demise of the league is that the, the Cosmos economics uh, uh, were such that no other owner could keep up with it, and it was became economically unbalanced. I, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, what I think happened, my, my personal opinion, is that when we expanded from 18 to 24 – for the 1978 season. I think that was the beginning of the end. It was done to get a bigger TV map, more markets across the country. But what it ignored, and perhaps I'm speaking with um, with hindsight, is that we were masking that we had a lot of franchises who weren't the Cosmos, Tampa, Portland, and Seattle, and didn't have the deep pockets of Lee Stern uh, and we suddenly added six more, and I think what you, I think it's quite arguable that what you begin to see then is the wobbling of a lot of the pins holding up the league. 
because there became it became necessary to prop up and uh, and uh, take care of the weaker of weak franchises rather than trying to solidify the strong ones. Well, see, that's interesting. Yeah, say that's also interesting because you mentioned sort of that that sort of collective approach to Pele's contract, right? And we've also talked about this theme with a lot of other folks in a lot of other different circumstances about sort of this tension business-wise between the franchise model and the sort of centrally controlled model. Now, I don't want to cast any aspersions or, or any, uh, 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 you know, parallels to MLS. So that's for another another podcast, another conversation. But um, there is something to be said economically, just in general, about sort of this, uh, I don't know, uh, centralized sort of approach. And it would almost seem that if in, in what you described earlier about sort of the Pele situation for the league, might have there also have been some other... Uh, shall we say, communal efforts uh, to prop up these weakest links uh, as as the league, one for all, all for one, or or was that franchise thing, as you're alluding to, going from sixteen to sixteen to twenty four, was that kind of just a doubling down on franchising? It was too late to do that. Doubling down on franchising to expand the marketing map and open up more markets. That that's that's what it was done for. Um, and don't forget, um, I, at, at risk of being cynical, um, and I have no no evidence of this other than that I've been around a long time. Uh, you got a franchise fee from new owners that came in, and if you could if you could, uh, you know, send a small check out to the 18 existing owners, that helped them meet payroll for a couple more weeks. Um, and so that that was that was an, is always an attractive reason to add new franchises. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that the NA I think the NASL Phil nobody's ever been more driven and more um obsessed with making a success out of something than Phil Woosnam was with was the with the NASL. And I say that in admiration, not as a criticism. Without Phil there isn't any league. Uh he could be difficult, he could be uh somewhat tunnel vision but boy, he wanted success. He never did anything that was was bad for the league. But I think he got perhaps a little bit out over his skis um, with the with the franchises. And I believe I, I've never I've never looked this up, and I don't have the book in front of me right now. I think you will start to find in the late '70s a fairly vigorous change of franchises uh, year by year as teams wobbled and teams moved and so forth. And, and and that that to me is more of the issue, and it became economically quite difficult in many of the cities. It wasn't the cosmos. It wasn't the cosmos. Peter Pocklington had more money than God, right? In Edmonton, um, I, I just don't buy into into the slagging of the cosmos on that. Uh, there may have been some truth to it. A Charlie Schiano, a very very decent lawyer, and his buddy Pat Donolfo and and Joe Siriani up in the up in Rochester, they couldn't compete with the Cosmos financially, but they stayed. So I, I just don't buy into that. But I, I just think I think we I think we grew too fast. There, there it is in in uh, three words, four words. We grew too fast. Yeah. Well, also too, it wasn't it wasn't for a lack of other. I mean, there were other you know deep pocketed owners that that continued to come in. Right, Ted Turner in Atlanta. And yeah, I mentioned Pocklington and. Uh, Madison Square Garden came back after having been one of the original uh, participants, uh, obviously under different management back in the 67, 68, you know, earliest days. 
was my first, it was our first soccer job in the United Soccer Association. It was with the the Skyliners, owned by uh, the Garden, nineteen sixty seven. Well, there you go. So I uh, 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 Montreal with Labat, I guess it was Labats, right? I mean the Manique. Uh, I, so, but it, it seemed to be almost like you know deep pocketed money, sort of maybe coming in a little too late, or or maybe somehow not sort of seeing maybe or uh, maybe the sort of the deeper roots that might have been. I guess yeah. assumed for a twenty-four team, two-country league. I think you've hit it probably on the head there. Franchises probably came in too too fast, and by that I mean it was great. I remember I was there when Peter Pocklington came in. I was I did the press conference when Henry Kissinger came aboard as honorary chairman and so forth. But the the full preparation of the marketplace hadn't really. Uh, been done. Uh, it was a kind of top-heavy. Pocklington came in. He's got a lot of money. He's Canadian. He's putting a team in Edmonton. Uh, we now know it doesn't necessarily happen quite quite that way. Also, the, the what we have today in soccer in this country in the 21st century is a very deeply prepared ground of people who are soccer aware, summer soccer savvy. Many have played. And most, uh, maybe I shouldn't say most, but I'm going to say most, most families have some connection to the sport. It might be through their grandchildren or something. None of that existed in the 70s. None of it. And so when you're going to try to pop a franchise down, there wasn't really a lot of fertilizer in the soil. And I, I think that was a, I think maybe uh, the the. the the uh, the context for when I say we we expanded too fast kind of kind of took the money put a franchise in but uh, they weren't ready Calgary Edmonton uh, Memphis um, yeah I, I, I hate to criticize any franchise but uh, you know some of it didn't last very long so uh, give us some sense of how you were dealing with the league office and 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 when did you uh, you segued them from the league office back to the team side right in uh, eighty or yeah. 90? Eighty. I I missed the team side. I had spent my entire career with teams, uh, whether it was a whether it was a Columbia or uh, the Jets. I'd worked for seven years uh, at, at Madison Square Garden at all the basketball games, and I was around the Knicks when they won their championships in a in a wonderful era when you could just walk into the locker room and say hello to Bill Bradley and Willis Reed and so forth. That doesn't happen anymore either. So I, I missed the teams. I, the league office I personally found a little bit stultifying. Uh, it was a little more admin without a lot of pizzazz. Um, it, it, that's what league offices are. So I, I, I had the opportunity to go down to the, the diplomats in a relatively similar situation. They were going to sign Johan Cruyff. And I guess Sonny Werblin at the time felt, well, this guy may know what he's doing. I didn't know. I didn't. I had known Sonny, but not uh, very well, very much. Um you know, gee, I guess he worked for the Cosmos. He worked for the Jets. I guess he, he must know something. So, so they took a shot, and I went to Washington for one year until until um, the Garden folded the franchise. Now, why did the Garden fold the franchise? I mean, maybe some of it's what we've already discussed, but uh, maybe a little inside, uh, like sort of. Oh, yeah. How does that How does very, that go down? Very, very simple. Had a wonderful season in seven in uh, nineteen eighty. Uh, hosted a soccer bowl, which sold out. Um, I was at that game, absolutely. Yeah, Cruyff was a, Cruyff was a, a star, um, a different personality. I don't think he made the impact in the marketplace that a Pelé did, but Johan Cruyff was not the same personality. He wasn't as uh, 
warm and fuzzy uh, as Pelé or, uh, or Franz or Carlos Alberto. So we get to the end of the season, and simply stated, the Garden people took a look at the numbers. You hate to be so cold about it, but it, Madison Square Garden is, uh, is a big corporation. It certainly was then. Um, and there was no way that they could see that it would ever turn positive and become a success in terms of franchise value, TV rights, all of those metrics and so forth. And Sonny decided, I can't do this anymore. It makes no, no sense in my corporation. And uh, he, in effect, sent the franchise certificate back. He said, here, you, you operate it. I'm not doing it anymore. But it was, they could never see any way that it would turn positive on the balance sheet. And that was not the way um, they did business. Kind of a shame, because I thought we had a pretty good thing going in Washington, a very, very loyal fan base and uh, a broad group of a variety of uh, ethnic communities, as well as a very, very vigorous youth scene in northern Virginia uh, and in PG County in Maryland. But uh, they made the decision, and that was that, and we went out of business. We didn't collapse. We didn't, uh, we didn't fold. I don't know what word. We just, uh, one day there wasn't a team anymore. It seemed almost like it was becoming the beginnings of a contagion to do so, though, that too, though. There were other, other league owners who were maybe doing their own sniffing and or due diligence and, and coming to some similar conclusions. And, and the contraction, right, began in earnest in 80, right, as it went yeah. from 24 to 21 and, and 18 and, you know, um, you know, you wonder uh, at what point does Phil uh, recognize that uh, maybe what you said earlier, this sort of uh, quick expansion may not have been the right thing. And uh, it almost feels like, I guess, that there was an attempt to kind of sort of solidify and recognize that. But maybe by that point, it was a little too late. The contraction was almost becoming a, 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 its own momentum. Yeah, it, 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 had, it had become too late by then. Too many people had um, suffered uh, too long, and it did not seem that there was going to be a uh, any 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 magic bullet. You know, you can't you can't run a, you can't run a franchise even today. You, I don't know of any franchise out there that runs on its admission prices, on ticket prices. You know, and the ancillary revenues were not there. I, I don't know exactly why. It was just a different era. They weren't there. They weren't. You know. T- uh, tens of millions. I use a small number for because it's a long time ago. You know, in TV money and so forth. I mean, the Cosmos paid to put their games on on WOR. Uh, it, w- it was a different era. And after a while of that, in the early '80s, I think it's '82 or '83. I, I I can't be certain, but it's right in there. The Cosmos lost ten million dollars. That's real money. And it was real money then. Let me tell you. You know, and you and um, then it's not so much a plaything anymore. And uh, maybe you're right. The contagion just just picks up. That boy, this thing is starting to hurt a little bit. Well, in the context of Warner Communications, uh, I think I remember a quote of Steve Ross. Well, Atari had gone down. Remember. Right. That was that was obviously a huge hit. But I think before then, I mean, I think uh, the uh, I think Ross would handle sort of the shareholder questions about sort of the losses that the Cosmos had. This is like circa 78 or so. And I think he said well, at one investor meeting one time it was uh, I think he equated. He goes, ah, it's 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 a it's a one it's a penny a share in terms of how much yeah. of the loss. I mean, I mean, is- in, in the heyday, it didn't even appear in the annual report. Exactly. 
the, the Cosmos numbers were basically a rounding error. Yeah, and obviously uh, uh, the ability to, to support and, and uh, keep that afloat without sort of uh, really batting an eyelash. But that's, you know, those kind of economics were absolutely not the same case with those other 23 or whatever. Uh, no, no, not at all. No. And if, uh, you know, I, I, you know, for sake of argument, if somebody out there is losing $2 million a year, um, that's real money too. If, if, if you've only got 15 million, let's say in your, in your net worth, it, it becomes a serious matter. All right. So what happens to Jim Trecker then, uh, at, you know, at that point when MSG pulls the plug, the diplomats are effectively no more, uh, here's a guy who's ridden the highest highs and starting to sort of see maybe the beginnings or maybe the hastening of the decline of this, uh, of this professional soccer league. Uh, what next? What, 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 what do you think about? What do you want to do? What do you, do you, do you, do you feel betrayed by the sport? What, what, what's going on through your head and, and career wise? What are your next, uh, what are your next moves? Hmm. Well, Madison Square Garden hired me to come back to New York and, um, uh, head up their corporate communications. So I worked there for, she was, I, I guess, five years, five years. Um, again, not fully my cup of tea. Then the, another um, deus ex machina came into my life in uh, 87 when I got a call absolutely out of the blue by a longtime colleague who told me that we're bidding for a World Cup in 1994, and I just can't handle all the... I, I can't do that public relations effort and do my own job, which was at the Federation. Can you come and help us? And um, here we are in 2018. That was a, a stroke of good luck. Well, and, and I had to work for the World Cup organizing committee, one of the first guys in, and uh, I think I'm one of only two that made it from... The beginning to the end, I guess three, three. Well, and and the irony of all ironies, right? Without that bid, successful and and the actual running of the tournament and its enormous, still unmatched financial success, mm-hmm. we have no current major league soccer league, which was right. a condition of the whole of the whole thing. Now, we don't necessarily have to talk about MLS. I mean, I, I've got my own issues with it. I think there's you know there's lots of positives. There's also a, a bunch of gnawing questions and or negatives longer term and. And all those things. I mean, the real estate play, that you know, soccer-specific stadiums, and you know, we're 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 approaching the same number of teams that the NASL started to you know uh, collapse under uh, in terms of number of franchises. Um, but you know, look, that's that's a, that that's quite that's saying something, Jim, right? Because you're you're part of the 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 fledgling uh, growth of of the professional version of this sport in this country. Uh, you see it sort of uh, crumble uh, and and sort of dissipate, and yet you're part of the uh, the renewed, shall we say, seeds of what is now a flourishing, albeit uh, uh, you know, uh, complex thicket of of forestry that is professional soccer in this country. And we've got you know a couple of dozen professional top tier major league soccer teams. We've got uh, you know a a, a very robust shall we call it minor league system now of, of pro mm-hmm. soccer teams and in other markets. Um, none of that happens without, uh, you know, without a world cup and renewing, I guess the United States is uh, a, a passion and interest uh, in the sport and professionally. So um, right. that's got to make you feel somewhat, um, I don't know, complete or, or some level of, of satisfaction. No, certainly. Um, 
I, I said before that uh, all of us are from the NASL era. Um, it's really deep in the heart. Um, but maybe the greatest achievement that I feel good about is playing a role in the 94 World Cup because it did leave such an enormous legacy. It, it led to women's soccer in the 96 Olympics. It led to a 99 Women's World Cup. It led to MLS. Um, it has it has led to the academy system and all of this stuff. It's all uh, can be traced back uh, to, 19, to 1994. And I suppose if we want to, you know, play the, uh, the the trite easy card it's all because of Paul Caligiuri's goal but uh, there was a lot of work for those six years prepping for the World Cup and uh, and throughout it we prepped to have a legacy remember the the, the slogan was to uh, have stage the best greatest World Cup ever and to leave a legacy for soccer and I just can't think of anything that could have fulfilled it more than the than what we had than, than than what we were able to do in a country which I'm speaking now without the benefit of hindsight. I'm speaking with a clear memory, a country that didn't fully embrace it in 1988 when we were awarded the World Cup, or 1989 when Caligiuri scored, or 1990 when we went to Italy and lost in three straight games. Um. The question I was asked repeatedly, hundreds of times, by Americans, many of them journalists, oh, the World Cup, yeah, tell me about it. Where, where is the game going to be played? And then you had to say, back then, 52 games, 30 days, a maximum of 12 cities. The level of knowledge was so low, and I am really... I, we, I'm so proud of having worked with everybody there because, boy, did we help change a lot of minds that uh, that this was a great sport. You come out and watch it, and by God, you're going to love it. And they did. A nation of Bill Youngs, if you will. Um, <laughs> but um, all right, so one last sort of question, and then I want to let you promote what you're what you're up to because I think our our our, our listeners are going to be very interested in, in what you're what you're you're stirring about now. But um, I, I, there's probably no better person to sort of ask this question. Um, what do you think the state of the sport of soccer is in this country right now? And, you know, especially given, um, you know, here we are literally on the edge of a, of a seemingly now competitive race against Morocco uh, to host the thing again uh, coming up in, in, in a few years, the World Cup. Um, and... You know, we didn't make the tournament for the first time in, in a long time, right? I think the expectations are now so uh, high or at least much more heightened than they ever were. Um, I think there's a, a growing, uh, I don't know, sense of consternation maybe perhaps that maybe, you know, there's another level that we have yet to break and we're, we're not sort of making any progress to getting there. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what, what do you, what do you, if you could put your finger on the pulse of, of, the pro and the international game in the United States right now, it's not all ascendant, I guess, as it was over, say, you know, the post-94 uh, and, and beginning of 96 MLS thing, right? There's almost like a stalling or a a questioning, I guess, of, of what that next level is and how do we get there. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about where we stand and maybe where we go from here. I think it's very important that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
and we don't tear everything down. We were one of very few countries in the world that had qualified for every World Cup from 1990 through 2014. Not many people do that. We've got a thriving league. We've got a vibrant uh, set of under leagues, Division twos and threes and whatever. I'm not even sure myself what all the nomenclature is. It doesn't really matter. There's teams playing all across the country now at a competitive level. Women are playing. The college game has, I think the latest count is more than a thousand college programs between men and women. I don't think that the state of the game has ever been stronger. I don't think that we need to smash pottery against the wall because of Trinidad. Wasn't good, but ask Italy, ask the Netherlands couple of countries that probably figured that they had their hotel reservations made too. Uh, That's why they play the game. I believe that when we look back from, say, 2050, and what's that? 22 years from now? Is that what that? No, 32 years from now. It's not very long. Just one generation. We're going to see the day in Trinidad, the night in Trinidad, as just a blip that invigorated the sport to greater and greater heights quicker and quicker. I think we're on the verge of an enormous outburst of, of, of greatness. Now, that doesn't mean we have all the answers right now. I think that the real benefit, it's, it's, I don't know if there's any benefit to what happened in Trinidad, and I know some people, a lot of people in the Federation will say there isn't any benefit from it, but I think there can be a positive outcome And that's that if it made everybody stop and say, "Uh uh-oh, it's not a birthright, it's not God-given, it's not engraved in tablets, let's give some thought to what we're doing. And that's what's going on now. Um, Do I know what direction it's going to take? No, I don't. Does Carlos Cordero at the Federation? I doubt that he does either. But the windows are open. Fresh air is blowing, and the country is too big, too, I don't want to sound overly American about it, but but too powerful. There's too many people involved in the game for it to stagnate. How it goes, I don't know. If I last long enough, we'll do this again, and we can all talk about how it went. But but at the moment, I think there's tremendous energy um, in the game. Uh, and I, that may, I don't. I, I think there are some people who don't who don't believe that. And I think sometimes energy is is a bit undefined. Uh, I don't know what direction it's going to go. Maybe we'll stutter step for a while. All right. I, I, I you know, uh, has has uh, has the nation, has the country of England, not the UK, England, have they won any title at Euro or at uh, the World Cup in the last 52 years? The answer is no. So let's not put crazy expectations on us. That's my speech. I I appreciate that. But uh, before you descend your soapbox, do you think the winning the bid for 2026 is crucial or inconsequential? Or I mean, it seems like it's a big deal and, and could be a similar, maybe even next level catalyst. But you wonder now that it's a competitive race, is that a blow that we can survive as a country? Yes. What it would do, conceivably, is slow down. We'd have to do a lot of rebuilding. It would probably slow down um, 
marketing and television and so forth, even if it didn't slow it down, if we just stayed where we were, winning the World Cup bid in 2026 is just going to is just going to accelerate the growth of the game, um, you know, ex- exponentially. Uh, but I'm telling you, this game is going to continue to grow here. The question is, and the 2020 the 2026 thing is is a hinge for it is is, to, is how fast it grows. This game isn't going away, and MLS isn't going away. Neither Cincinnati in the in the uh, in the USL, not, none of these, none of this stuff is going to die. The 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 NASL uh, equation is not is, uh, is is no longer operative in my mind. The NASL was a remarkable achievement on an unceded territory. There is too much soccer in this country right now to do anything except keep moving forward. And certainly, see, I don't I don't think 2026 would be fatal. And I know there's some people who may disagree with me on that. But I, I think what it'll do, it'll, it, it, it may put the gear shift in neutral for a while, and we don't want that to happen. All right. So we squeezed your uh, some passion out of you and your uh, and your your thoughts about the future. Um, why don't you regale our audience with uh, what you're up to around? Uh, importantly, looking back, uh, what what are you uh, what are you working on, and, and perhaps can uh, can our audience get involved in some way, shape, or form? Well, um, there's a website, nasl50th, nasl50th.com. Check it out, because on October 19, 20, and 21 of this coming year, this year, what is that, about seven months from now? Oh, gosh, six months. Holy cow, time is ticking. Uh, there will be a reunion of NASL players and staff and coaches and so forth uh, to celebrate the 50th year of of the North American Soccer League, and we have got there are so many people coming. Everybody from from Pat McBride um, to, to to Ricky Davis to Bobby Smith, um, Johnny Moore from 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 San Jose. Uh, we're going to have a couple hundred NASLers, and this is going to be in Frisco, Texas, which is the uh, the home of uh, FC Dallas. Uh, a couple of the events will be at the Dallas uh, at the at the Toyota Stadium, um, and it's going to be it's going to be just a phenomenal getting to, together again and celebrating uh, a lot of what we've been talking about tonight. Just the, these these great old days and and that 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 missionary zeal. Uh, we've already got close to a hundred confirmed uh, people coming down there. Um, Al Miller is going to be there. Al, one of the great coaches, you know, the, the Hunts, uh, uh, Lamar's kids uh, own FC Dallas, and they'll be participating in this. So um, anybody who is an NASL fan, a booster, or involved, uh, that's going to be the place to be over that weekend. It'll be, it's not going to be very formal, the NASL thing. There's going to be a veterans match, uh, which should be kind of fun. I've gotten a lot of emails from people who say it's pretty much up to whether their their hips still operate six months from now. But a lot of guys want to play, and I think we're going to have some fun times. George Siega, one of the uh, real early Cosmos, um, is coming back from – he's already got his plane tickets. He's on, coming back from Brazil, where he now lives, because he doesn't want to miss it for anything. Uh, guys are a lot of guys are coming out of the St. Louis area, which of course is you know relatively close to to Dallas, and we're going to have a weekend of swapping stories and signing autographs and uh, just having a, a, a grand old time. Everybody, everybody who's anybody from the old NASL is is going to be there. 
uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are no longer with us. And the 50th year, um, Bobby Moffat is the real, uh, I guess Clive had the idea. Bobby Moffat's had the energy, and I've pitched in where I can. Uh, 50 years, wow, we, we, we better do it because we're all getting along in the tooth, and we don't want to let this, we don't want to forget well, that's uh, that's awesome. I already have my uh, my hotel room uh, booked. Uh, as you know, uh, Bobby's been a, a guest on our show, and and you use the word missionary, and he uh, he used that word uh, uh, a lot in our conversation. And I think he feels that uh, he and and a lot of the tornado players at the time were certainly mm-hmm. that. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a it's a great thing. And frankly, uh, I would love to uh, you know get a few uh, folks uh, to to interview as a part of that or, or be helpful in the, in, in the programming of that. But again, that's the NASL 50th 50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th50th
information about the NASL reunion is nasl50th.com. That's nasl50th.com. nasl50th.com. That's the place to go to find out all the information about hotels, uh, the dates, the the events, the stuff that's going on. Uh, again, it's not just the NASL that, that weekend, but also the uh, uh, the relaunch of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Uh, I guarantee you, if you're a soccer fan of any shape or form, uh, that it will be uh, an amazing time uh, to be had. And uh, I look forward myself to being there, too. And uh, with any luck, hopefully we'll get a few uh, interviews uh, as part of that. I'd love to be able to do that and help maybe with some of the programming. Uh, and we know uh, that uh, many of you listeners out there will uh, probably uh, join us uh, in uh, in being there as well. So we look forward to maybe meeting some of you, too. That would be awesome. Um, let's see. So uh, we want to thank our friends at uh, Podfly Productions, as always. Uh, in particular, yes, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. At least I can't at, the, at this point. And his name is uh, Jerry Payne. Uh, Jerry is the... Uh, the chief cook and bottle washer for me and this episode of this show. Generally, uh, he's the one that puts all the pieces together, makes it sound nice and smooth. And uh, I can't do this show without him and Podfly Productions, podfly.net. That's the place to go. And the place to go for more information about our little show. Uh, please bookmark it. Visit early, visit often. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Goodseatsstillavailable.com. Make sure you go, make sure you check it out. You'll find all of our social feeds there, our email address and all that kind of stuff. Socially, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, make sure you find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us as well. Like I said, the website's the place where you can send us an email, uh, all that kind of good stuff. And please, 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 if you do nothing else, uh, make sure that wherever you listen, especially if it's on Apple Podcasts slash uh, iTunes, uh, whatever name they're coming up with this month uh, for their podcast stuff at Apple. Uh, make sure that you rate and review us, and uh, especially if it's a kind and positive and five-star one. We love those. But more importantly, and again, wherever you can rate and review, it doesn't have to be on Apple, uh, it's really helpful. It's extremely helpful because that means other people uh, like you uh, who enjoy this kind of programming and this kind of stuff, these kind of topics that we delve into, will be able to find and discover the show that much more easily. So please, please, uh, by all means, rate and review us. We appreciate that. Uh, in lieu of any financial contributions uh, that you're making to the show, whether by uh, frequenting our sponsors or whatever, uh, you, that's a, a, an easy thing that you can do uh, for no cost. And uh, it's uh, it's good for the soul and it's certainly good for us. Uh, we appreciate that. All right, I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. We can't do this show without you. We love and appreciate your support. And uh, who knows what we'll be talking about next week, but it'll be fun. I guarantee it. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Good night. And or whatever it is, morning, afternoon. See ya. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.